Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the last day of July, that means the 31st, and um, it's the year 2022. This will actually mark Membrane Biochemistry Lecture 25. So we were talking about KVOLA. These are these internal membranous invaginations which are involved in very specific membrane-associated transport mechanisms, and then so much more. And by that, I mean the last part of that sentence. The way the KVOLI integrate the network of communication from extracellular to intracellular is sufficient to imply that those membranous structures, which can also become membrane lipid rafts, thus translocating proteins intracellularly, and yes, via exocytosis, extracellularly, are involved in all major paradigms in biochemical processes. This includes DNA replication, DNA repair, DNA recombination, the transcription of DNA to RNA, the translation of RNA to polypeptide, post-translational modification of polypeptide in subcellular organelles, such as the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus, as well as in the cytoplasm and in the peroxisome and within the membrane of the plasma, uh, the plasma membrane itself. Along with that, signal transduction, including phosphorylation, other covalent modification, hydrophobic interactions, and cell fate. I could go on, but that's what's on the top of my head, just briefly outlining what we've been talking about with KVOLA and it. That's why I spent so many lectures on them. Now, we're going to really try to finish KVOLA today. I don't know if we can, because I'm going to do some basic membrane biochemistry, because I need, think we need to go back and review that so I can finally finish this arc of lectures on membrane biochemistry. So even if I finish KVLA today, we're not done with this series of lectures. But before I even do that, I want to do a little bit of philosophical prolegomena. I do this sometimes in authentic biochemistry, and I did it in uh, open lecture when I taught at university, because when I read philosophical writings. They inform me on how to interpret my research science. And it's not just because, uh, particularly the kind of philosophy I read, Western philosophy, um, has within it embedded logical principles, which of course I use regularly in research science, and also in uh, being a professor and lecturing on how to organize a lecture because that helps me organize my thoughts so I can generate good arguments that are both sound and valid. That's one component using things like the square of opposition, which I've talked about many times. But the other level of it, the other reason of using philosophy is it allows me to reinterpret the basic principles that I hold as paradigmatic, or shall we just say as a knowledge base. Because those thresholds of the foundations of what can be considered research science are not foundations that are inviolate to rebuilding you need to constantly reevaluate what you understand in research science. And that includes going all the way back to its foundations. And to go back to the foundations of science, you have to go back to the foundations of reason. So I read a great deal of philosophy and I do it also because it's entertaining. <laughs> But um, let's start off this lecture um, with this sort of, um, oh, I guess, brief consideration. I don't really know if it's brief, but it's certainly um, 
one that drives a lot of my pursuit and an understanding of the research literature. And this comes from initially a third century Neoplatonist known as Plotinus. And I think it um, allows me to um, expose how philosophical thought, or that is the aspects of understanding how reason functions in a mind can be inherited from previous discussions of such complex metaphysics and epistemology through a lineage of great thinkers, okay? So from Plotinus, we know, because I've read it and it is written in the Aeneids, which were actually penned by his student Porphyry, we know that there's a hierarchy in Plotinian Neoplatonism, which he has derived from both Platonism, Middle Platonism, Aristotelian metaphysics, and then his own interpretation uh, there in Alexandria, uh, and again, in the third century. So it's uh, second to third century AD. Now what Plotinus says is that the one, and that's the top of his hierarchy, is imminence itself, imminence. Imminence, which is all encompassing, eternal and infinite. So Plotinus tells me that the one is both noumena and phenomena. So noumena is the thing in itself, self-causing, and phenomena is the thing essentially for me, that is the physical world, okay, for me and for any uh, sentient being. So the one is both the cause and the effect. And that's a significant thing because the one emanates, emanates now with an E, not an I, intellect. Now, intellect is all intelligence thus including knowledge and the power of knowing. So Plotinus likes to tell us in the Neod 5 that intellect doesn't do anything, doesn't perform any act, has no agency except to itself also emanate to the next rung on the ladder of hierarchy, which we'll get to in a moment, that's called soul. But I thought about that for a long time. Why does pure intellect not do anything in this Plotinian metaphysical description? And I think I figured it out because I'm a research scientist. What do we spend all this time on? All this great detail, all the enzymes, substrates, products of reactions, the thermodynamics, the kinetics, the dynamics, the interconversion of one species of membrane lipid to another, biophysical phenomenon, as well as all those biochemical phenomenon, all the genetics, molecular genetics and epigenetics involved in cellular fate, as well as the introduction of an idea of how cells communicate with one another, including in humans, the circuitry system, which involves the immune response. So if all of that was known together, every detail, because every detail does occur, Otherwise, there would be no living system. Every detail does work. And if it does work, there is a detail of which every event could be known. Now, could it all be known by one being all at the same time and always? No, not unless you are intellect, right? 
which is the second on the hierarchy of the Platinian uh, universe. Certainly not what humans are capable of. But that's what that's why intellect doesn't have to do anything, because it essentially knows everything. And we in biochemistry and other research scientific endeavors, endeavors of the biological perspective, we continually try to um, find evidence to reveal nature, natural systems. And again, in some of the natural sciences, for example, like geology, they're not looking at living systems, although living systems constantly have an effect on geological formations, of course. But in living systems, as biologists, and a biochemist is a biologist, what we do is try to get as much detail as we can of how nature functions at the cellular and then ultimately at the physiological and organismal level. And so when I sometimes ask myself, why do I want to give all this detail out? It's because the more detail I'm able to not just apprehend, that means to hold on to, but further to obtain. And by that, I mean some kind of assimilation into a knowledge base. The clearer it is to me, the whole aspect still only a minutia compared to what pure intellect would know of what's happening because it would know and it knows because it knows how to know that infinitely. Right. Okay, so back to the Platinian thing and then I'll get to the membrane lecture. So the one is eminence with an I it's all-encompassing, eternal, and infinite. The one is noumenon phenomena, and thus both cause and effect. So the one emanates intellect, which is all intelligence, thus including knowledge and the power of knowing. Intellect now emanates, again with an E, soul, or world soul. Now that's an Aristotelian term. And again, we're in, we're in Plotinian metaphysics, right? Now, when the Plotinus looked at Aristotle as well, right? So when the soul uses, and this, these are his terms, her fraction of intelligence, she contemplates forms. These are the Socratic or Plotinian forms, or ideals is what I would call them. And they are generated by her, that is, world soul to interpret what is emanated by intelligence, you see? So soul's contemplation, this is directly from Plotinus's Aeneid V, as is penned by Porphyry, uh, taking notes apparently when Plotinus was lecturing this. Soul's contemplation without the form which is a realized event, means nothing. So contemplation without form means nothing. Now that is a paraphrase of the Platinian um, exact quote. Now Kant, Immanuel Kant, writing in 1780s, writes that, the con that concepts without percept are empty. Now, to me, that's a paraphrase of Plotinus. Now, you find that in the Critique of Pure Reason, first published in 1781. So, what I say, okay, having this background in how I write my lectures, I say that scientific theories without evidence are unjustified and this lack of justification alone negates theoretical consistency. Okay. Now, I say evidence without a priori understanding is impossible to interpret. I get that from reading Kant, who says, 
percepts without concepts are blind. So concepts, percepts without concepts are blind. And that percepts, and that concepts without percepts are empty, right? Those are the two sides of one uh, well-described dialectic. So again, I say evidence without a priori understanding, and remember understanding is popular by concepts, is impossible to interpret. So when you just have evidence and you don't have an understanding that is built into a framework of knowledge, so an a priori, so that you can carry out an a priori synthesis of the evidence, you can't interpret it. It's just sense data. So finally, I say that truth must be coherent, foundational, necessary, and indeed universal. Finally then, without justification or truth, there is no belief. And you know that knowledge is JTB, justified true belief. So without belief, there is no knowledge. Now I went through this whole thing to explain two things. One is that although it's never been described that I can tell that Kant read Plotinus. Now we know that Ficino, who was a translator that took the Greek uh, versions of Plato and Plotinus and translated them into Latin in the 15th century, 16th century, around that time, the, the turning of the 15th into the 16th, as I recall, Ficino translated Plato and Plotinus. That means that those would have been available in Latin to Kant when he was in graduate school in the 1760s. Okay? So, did Kant read Plotinus? I don't know. He didn't reference Plotinus, but in those days they didn't reference their progenitors as often as we do. We always reference people, just like I'm doing right now. I'm telling you Plotinus and Kant, right? So the reason I bring that up is that all of our knowledge is built on the interlocution from others who have carried on a tradition of knowing. And the way you know is you have to justify what you obtain as true, and then you have to believe it. Right? That's how knowledge is continued. And so learning that I, I believe now, because I, I dug this out, I dug out that Kant probably read Plotinus because I can see how he paraphrased that first um, set of principles out of Aeneid 5. Um, that helped me after I read Kant. And of course, I also read Plotinus because now I have both, right? Kant didn't have Kant. Kant had his mind and Plotinus and a lot of other philosophers like, of course, the rather sorry person Hume. <laughs> but also, yeah, read. Um, at least I can say that the knowledge that I'm able to interpret and in research science comes through a, an a priori synthesis of how to interpret what knowing is. And I get that all the way back from Plotinus. And of course, Plotinus was getting that from Plato, which was, you know, 4th century BC, right? So what, 600 years before he was writing? And then Aristotle around that era too, you know, mid 4th century, three in the 300s BC. So you see how all that works. The other reason I brought all this up, the other reason I'm giving this as a prolegoma today's lecture, is what I said at the beginning, all this detail that we do in authentic biochemistry, is it necessary? Yes, it's necessary for a person, an individual to apprehend all that information and then to translate that into some kind of contemplative understanding 
so that with that understanding as the foundation, one can interpret the evidence. And without that, if you're just looking at pinpricks uh, in, in a, 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 a mass of blackness, pinpricks of light, you're not able to understand anything about the association. So you have to create an association. You can do it geometrically. It's how the ancients did it with the stars, right? They found images in the sky, which is the reasoning process, which is that a priori synthesis, right? So we're doing, I'm doing nothing else. We're doing it, meaning you and I are doing it because you listen to these lectures and I'm doing it because I'm writing it, I'm composing it, because this is how I think about it. I'm trying to take all of that sense data and use it as a means to get to another level of understanding, right? And if you don't at least attempt to do that, and you look at simple biochemical processes, like a metabolic pathway, that you're saying trying to target with a new drug, Right, a new pharmaceutical or some pathogen, you know, take a viral pathogen, for example, and try to block its transmission by inhibiting, say, its replication in a host cell. And you only look at a few of the assembled motifs within that process. And you don't think about what's beyond those initial events. How is it any way going to become an authentic approach to preventing or controlling or having even a handle on that is apprehending the approach to isolate and therefore attempt to prevent an infection? Okay, so enough metaphysics and epistemology. Let's just do... Um, membrane biochemistry again. Now, I told you that at the level of the plasma membrane, KVLA influenced general membrane properties. And I told you that means nanoclustering of specific phospholipids like phosphatidylserine, which allows for a nanoscale organization of lipid-based signaling. And when you disrupt that domain, a caveolar domain, you're disrupting not only the polypeptides and the lipids and the carbohydrates and the nucleic acids. And by that, I mean such things as dissociating cabin proteins. That would be one way to disrupt the caveolar domain. That will lead to a loss of lipid concentrating activity and that means lipids of specific shape. So the morphological features and then the topodynamics in the membrane will be corrupted. Such things as curved domains, such as the neck region of intact caveoli. Okay, because what, then what you get is a flattening of that structure. You no longer have curved lipids. And a flattening of that structure gives you a totally different caveoli domain for whatever function it may have been pro, uh, providing the cell. So I want to remind you that entropy rather than enthalpic curvature energy dominates lipid distribution unless ordering of acyl chains via membrane components like cholesterol provide a specific preferential, lateral, intermolecular interaction. So as with curvature-induced phase segregation, such as making a bilayer, right? Lipid cooperativity is going to be required to enable efficient protein sorting. And water exclusion plays a very significant role in that phenomenon. Yeah. So back to the specific, KVOLI have been implicated in glycosphingolipid transport. And we have spent a great deal of time talking about that. Now, 
let's go into another uh, lecture hall right now and imagine this lecture hall is a general membrane lecture. So I want you to think back to the Singer-Nicholson membrane. The Singer-Nicholson membrane is viewed as proteins embedded in a lipid matrix. This was known as the fluid mosaic models, what I was taught when I was at university. And it describes an amorphous lipid phase that can be either liquid crystalline or gel. And it is represented as a bilayer where you have the hydrophobic fatty acyl core. And then you have an extended polar head group, which forms the two edges of each leaflet, right? And somehow you have then these sterile lipids that are interdigitated. And we, we knew then during the production of the fluid mosaic model that somehow they were adding rigidity and involved allowing assortment of embedded proteins. Now, aqueous dispersed emulsions, though, don't just generate that fluid mosaic bilayer. <laughs> aqueous dispersed emulsions, emulsion is a dispersion of uh, hydrophilic and hydrophobic uh, event substances, right? So lipids and water-based compounds. So that's what an emulsion is. An inverted emulsion would be one that's solid, and a regular emulsion would be one that maintains a two-phase liquid. So aqueous dispersed emulsions also generate non-bilayer phases. So more solid gel, gel phases occur at lower temperatures as the molar ratio of saturated fatty acids is increased. The longer the saturated alkane will be the higher the melting point of phase, which will give you disorder. So there's problems with that initial model then, that Singer-Nicholson model. And they were immediately posed in the literature because it showed that model lipid bilayers organized according to homogeneous glycerol lipids, like say just pure phosphatidylcholine, are not what you find in nature. We knew back at the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, that membrane lipids had any host of several different types of lipid structures. And then soon after that, we determined that those lip complex lipids had different molecular species. So example, phosphatidylcholine, you have to describe what the fatty acid is on the one and two position of the glycerol backbone. And there's any different distinction of a fatty acid could be one or the other of those positions. That's going to give you a different molecular species. That's going to give you a different membrane. Okay. So you could say, well, yes, but these are just fine points. No, they're not just fine points. The Singer-Nicholson model is incomplete. And if it's incomplete and you try to say that you have a theory about it, because a model should be used to generate some kind of theory about how membranes uh, event in nature and therefore how they function, right? Structure function. Um, well, you're going to be wrong. Because even when you go looking for evidence, what is that a priori synthetic means by which you even know what experiments to generate as hypothetical deductions? Because you're already working on a model that itself is not true. Because simply its composition is different than what you're claiming it is. Because all those earlier studies, they were very elegant, by the way. I remember reading some of them you know, so many years ago. We're using synthetic membranes. They weren't using natural membranes because the technology at the time, you couldn't do natural membranes. In fact, even today, um, when you do liposomal work and like you're trying to develop a new pharmaceutical, chances are you're using some kind of micellar system where you're manufacturing a membrane surface, unilamellar, bilayer, etc. Hex two phase, doesn't matter what you're looking at. And you use real membranes, you have to use cells, and then everything is added back. 
and when everything's added back. <laughs> I Good morning. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the last day of July. That means 31st. And um, it's the year 2022. This will actually mark Membrane Biochemistry Lecture 25. So we were talking about KVOLA. These are these internal membranous invaginations, which are involved in very specific membrane associated transport mechanisms, and then so much more. And by that, I mean the last part of that sentence, the way the KVOLI integrate the network of communication from extracellular to intracellular is sufficient to imply that those membranous structures, which can also become membrane lipid rafts, thus translocating proteins intracellularly, and yes, via exocytosis, extracellularly, are involved in all major paradigms and biochemical processes. This includes DNA replication, DNA repair, DNA recombination, the transcription of DNA to RNA, the translation of RNA to polypeptide, post-translational modification of polypeptide in subcellular organelles, such as the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi apparatus, as well as in the cytoplasm and in the peroxisome and within the membrane of the plasma, uh, the plasma membrane itself. Along with that, signal transduction, including phosphorylation, other covalent modification, hydrophobic interactions, and cell fate. I could go on, but that's what's on the top of my head, just briefly outlining what we've been talking about with KVOLA, and that's why I spent so many lectures on them. Now, we're going to really try to finish KVOLA today. I don't know if we can, because I'm going to do some basic membrane biochemistry, because I need, think we need to go back and review that so I can finally finish this arc of lectures on membrane biochemistry. So even if I finish KVOLA today, we're not done with this series of lectures. But before I even do that, I want to do a little bit of philosophical prolegomena. I do this sometimes in authentic biochemistry, and I did it in uh, open lecture when I taught at university, because when I read philosophical writings, they inform me on how to interpret my research science. It's not just because, uh, particularly the kind of philosophy I read, Western philosophy, um, has within it embedded logical principles, which of course I use regularly in research science and also in uh, being a professor and lecturing on how to organize a lecture because that helps me organize my thoughts so I can generate good arguments that are both sound and valid. That's one component using things like the square of opposition, which I've talked about many times. But the other level of it, the other reason of using philosophy is it allows me to reinterpret the basic principles that I hold as paradigmatic, or shall we just say as a knowledge base. Because those thresholds of the foundations of what can be considered research science are not foundations that are inviolate to rebuilding, you need to constantly reevaluate what you understand in research science. And that includes going all the way back to its foundations. And to go back to the foundations of science, you have to go back to the foundations of reason. So I read a great deal of philosophy. And I do it also because it's entertaining. <laughs> but um, let's start off this lecture um, with this sort of, uh, oh, I guess, 
brief consideration. I don't really know if it's brief, but it's certainly um, one that drives a lot of my pursuit and an understanding of the research literature. And this comes from initially third century Neoplatonist known as Plotinus. And I think it um, allows me to um, expose how philosophical thought, or that is the aspects of understanding how reason functions in a mind can be inherited from previous discussions of such complex metaphysics and epistemology through a lineage of great thinkers, okay? So from Plotinus, we know, because I've read it and it is written in the Aeneids, which were actually penned by his student Porphyry, we know that there's a hierarchy in Plotinian Neoplatonism, which he has derived from both Platonism, Middle Platonism, Aristotelian metaphysics, and then his own interpretation uh, there in Alexandria, uh, and again, in the third century. So it's uh, second to third century AD. Now what Plotinus says is that the one, and that's the top of his hierarchy, is imminence itself, imminence. Imminence, which is all encompassing, eternal and infinite. So Plotinus tells me that the one is both noumena and phenomena. So noumena is the thing in itself, self-causing, and phenomena is the thing essentially for me, that is the physical world, okay, for me and for any uh, sentient being. So the one is both the cause and the effect. And that's a significant thing because the one emanates, emanates now with an E, not an I, intellect. Now, intellect is all intelligence, thus including knowledge and the power of knowing. So, Plotinus likes to tell us in the Neod 5 that intellect doesn't do anything, doesn't perform any act, has no agency except to itself also emanate to the next rung on the ladder of hierarchy, which we'll get to in a moment. That's called soul. But I thought about that for a long time. Why does pure intellect not do anything in this Plotinian metaphysical description. And I think I figured it out because I'm a research scientist. What do we spend all this time on? All this great detail, all the enzymes, substrates, products of reactions, the thermodynamics, the kinetics, the dynamics, the interconversion of one species of membrane lipid to another, biophysical phenomenon, as well as all those biochemical phenomenon, all the genetics, molecular genetics and epigenetics involved in cellular fate, as well as the introduction of an idea of how cells communicate with one another, including in humans, the circuitry system, which involves the immune response. So if all of that was known together, every detail, because every detail does occur, otherwise there would be no living system. Every detail does work. And if it does work, there is a detail of which every event could be known. Now, could it all be known by one being all at the same time and always? No. 
No, not unless you are intellect, right? Which is the second on the hierarchy of the Platinian uh, universe. Certainly not what humans are capable of. But that's, what, that's why intellect doesn't have to do anything. Because it essentially knows everything. And we in biochemistry and other research scientific endeavors, endeavors of the biological perspective, we continually try to um, find evidence to reveal nature, natural systems. And again, in some of the natural sciences, for example, like geology, they're not looking at living systems, although living systems constantly have an effect on geological formations, of course. But in living systems, as biologists, and a biochemist is a biologist, what we do is try to get as much detail as we can of how nature functions at the cellular and then ultimately at the physiological and organismal level. And so when I sometimes ask myself, why do I want to give all this detail out? It's because the more detail I'm able to not just apprehend, that means to hold on to, but further to obtain. And by that, I mean some kind of assimilation into a knowledge base. The clearer it is to me, the whole aspect still only a minutia compared to what pure intellect would know of what's happening because it would know and it knows because it knows how to know that infinitely. Right? Okay, so back to the Platinian thing and then I'll get to the membrane lecture. So the one is eminence with an I it's all-encompassing, eternal, and infinite. The one is noumenon phenomena, and thus both cause and effect. So the one emanates intellect, which is all intelligence, thus including knowledge and the power of knowing. Intellect now emanates, again with an E, soul, or world soul. Now that's an Aristotelian term. And again, we're in, we're in Plotinian metaphysics, right? Now, when the Plotinus looked at Aristotle as well, right? So when the soul uses, and this, these are his terms, her fraction of intelligence, she contemplates forms. These are the Socratic or Plotinian forms, or ideals is what I would call them. And they are generated by her, that is, world soul to interpret what is emanated by intelligence, you see? So soul's contemplation, this is directly from Plotinus's Aeneid V, as is penned by Porphyry, uh, taking notes apparently when Plotinus was lecturing this. Soul's contemplation without the form which is a realized event, means nothing. So contemplation without form means nothing. Now that is a paraphrase of the Platinian um, exact quote. Now Kant, Immanuel Kant, writing in 1780s, writes that, the con that concepts without percept are empty. Now, to me, that's a paraphrase of Plotinus. Now, you find that in the Critique of Pure Reason, first published in 1781. So, what I say, okay, having this background in how I write my lectures, I say that scientific theories without evidence are unjustified and this lack of justification alone negates theoretical consistency. Okay. Now, I say evidence without a priori understanding is impossible to interpret. 
I get that from reading Kant, who says, percepts without concepts are blind. So Kant says percepts without concepts are blind, and that percepts and that concepts without percepts are empty. Right? Those are the two sides of one uh, well-described dialectic. So again, I say evidence without without a priori understanding, and remember understanding is popular by concepts, is impossible to interpret. So when you just have evidence and you don't have an understanding that is built into a framework of knowledge, so an a priori, so that you can carry on an a priori synthesis of the evidence, you can't interpret it. It's just sense data. So, Finally, I say that truth must be coherent, foundational, necessary, and indeed universal. Finally, then, without justification or truth, there is no belief. And you know that knowledge is JTB, justified true belief. So without belief, there is no knowledge. Now, I went through this whole thing to explain two things. One is that, although it's never been described that I can tell, that Kant read Plotinus. Now, we know that Ficino, who was a translator that took the Greek uh, versions of Plato and Plotinus, and translated them into Latin in the 15th century, 16th century, around that time, the, the turning of the 15th into the 16th, as I recall, Ficino translated Plato and Plotinus. That means that those would have been available in Latin to Kant when he was in graduate school in the 1760s. Okay? So, did Kant read Plotinus? I don't know. He didn't reference Plotinus, but in those days they didn't reference their progenitors as often as we do. We always reference people, just like I'm doing right now. I'm telling you Plotinus and Kant, right? So the reason I bring that up is that all of our knowledge is built on the interlocution from others who have carried on a tradition of knowing and the way you know is you have to justify what you obtain as true, and then you have to believe it. Right? That's how knowledge is continued. And so learning that I, I believe now, because I, I dug this out, I dug out that Kant probably read Plotinus, because I can see how he paraphrased that first um, set of principles out of Aeneid 5. Um, that helped me after I read Kant, and of course, I also read Plotinus, because now I have both, right? Kant didn't have Kant. Kant had his mind and Plotinus and a lot of other philosophers, like, of course, the rather sorry person Hume. <laughs> but also, yeah, Reed. Um, at least I can say that the knowledge that I'm able to interpret and in research science comes through a, an a priori synthesis of how to interpret what knowing is. And I get that all the way back from Plotinus. And of course, Plotinus was getting that from Plato, which was, you know, fourth century BC, right? So what, 600 years before he was writing. And then Aristotle around that era too. You know, mid fourth century, three in the three hundreds BC. So you see how all that works. The other reason I brought all this up, the other reason I'm giving this as a prolegoma in today's lecture, is what I said at the beginning. All this detail that we do in authentic biochemistry is it necessary? Yes, it's necessary for a person, an individual, to apprehend all that information and then to translate that into some kind of contemplative 
understanding so that with that understanding as the foundation, one can interpret the evidence. And without that, if you're just looking at pinpricks uh, in, in a, 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 a mass of blackness, pinpricks of light, you're not able to understand anything about the association. So you have to create an association. You can do it geometrically. It's how the ancients did it with the stars, right? They found images in the sky, which is the reasoning process, which is that a priori synthesis, right? So we're doing, I'm doing nothing else. We're doing it, meaning you and I are doing it because you listen to these lectures and I'm doing it because I'm writing it, I'm composing it, because this is how I think about it. I'm trying to take all of that sense data and use it as a means to get to another level of understanding, right? And if you don't at least attempt to do that, and you look at simple biochemical processes, like a metabolic pathway, that you're saying trying to target with a new drug, Right, a new pharmaceutical or some pathogen, you know, take a viral pathogen, for example, and try to block its transmission by inhibiting, say, its replication in a host cell. And you only look at a few of the assembled motifs within that process. And you don't think about what's beyond those initial events. How is it any way going to become an authentic approach to preventing or controlling or having even a handle on that is apprehending the approach to isolate and therefore attempt to prevent an infection? Okay, so enough metaphysics and epistemology. Let's just do um membrane biochemistry again now i told you that at the level of the plasma membrane kvla influenced general membrane properties and i told you that means nanoclustering of specific phospholipids like phosphatidylserine which allows for a nanoscale organization of lipid-based signaling and when you disrupt that domain a caveolar domain, you're disrupting not only the polypeptides and the lipids and the carbohydrates and the nucleic acids. And by that, I mean such things as dissociating cabin proteins. That would be one way to disrupt the caveolar domain. That will lead to a loss of lipid concentrating activity and that means lipids of specific shape. So the morphological features and then the topodynamics of the membrane will be corrupted. Such things as curved domains, such as the neck region of intact caveoli. Okay, because what, then what you get is a flattening of that structure. You no longer have curved lipids. And a flattening of that structure gives you a totally different caveoli domain for whatever function it may have been uh, providing the cell. So I want to remind you that entropy rather than enthalpic curvature energy dominates lipid distribution unless ordering of acyl chains via membrane components like cholesterol provide a specific preferential, lateral, intermolecular interaction. So as with curvature-induced phase segregation, such as making a bilayer, right? Lipid cooperativity is going to be required to enable efficient protein sorting. And water exclusion plays a very significant role in that phenomenon. Yeah. So back to the specific, KVOLI have been implicated in glycosphingolipid transport. And we have 
spend a great deal of time talking about that. Now, let's go into another uh, lecture hall right now and imagine this lecture hall is a general membrane lecture. So I want you to think back to the Singer-Nicholson membrane. The Singer-Nicholson membrane is viewed as proteins embedded in a lipid matrix. This was known as the fluid mosaic models, what I was taught when I was at university. And it describes an amorphous lipid phase that can be either liquid crystalline or gel. And it is represented as a bilayer where you have the hydrophobic fatty acyl core. And then you have an extended polar head group, which forms the two edges of each leaflet, right? And somehow you have then these sterolipids that are interdigitated. And we, we knew then during the production of the fluid mosaic model that somehow they were adding rigidity and involved allowing assortment of embedded proteins. Now, aqueous dispersed emulsions, though, don't just generate that fluid mosaic bilayer. <laughs> Aqueous dispersed emulsions, emulsion is a dispersion of uh, hydrophilic and hydrophobic uh, event substances, right? So lipids and water-based compounds. So that's what an emulsion is. An inverted emulsion would be one that's solid and a regular emulsion would be one that maintains a two-phase liquid. So aqueous dispersed emulsions also generate non-bilayer phases. So more solid gel, gel phases occur at lower temperatures as the molar ratio of saturated fatty acids is increased. The longer the saturated alkane will be the higher the melting point of the phase, which will give you disorder. So there's problems with that initial model then that Singer-Nicholson model. And they were immediately posed in the literature because it showed that model lipid bilayers organized according to homogeneous glycerol lipids, like say just pure phosphatidylcholine, are not what you find in nature. We knew back at the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, that membrane lipids had any host of several different types of lipid structures. And then soon after that, we determined that those lip complex lipids had different molecular species. So example, phosphatidylcholine, you have to describe what the fatty acid is on the one and two position of the glycerol backbone. And there's any different distinction of a fatty acid could be one or the other of those positions. That's going to give you a different molecular species. That's going to give you a different membrane. Okay. So you could say, well, yes, but these are just fine points. No, they're not just fine points. The Singer-Nicholson model is incomplete. And if it's incomplete and you try to say that you have a theory about it, because a model should be used to generate some kind of theory about how membranes uh, event in nature and therefore how they function, right? Structure function. Um, well, you're going to be wrong. Because even when you go looking for evidence, what is that a priori synthetic means by which you even know what experiments to generate as hypothetical deductions? Because you're already working on a model that itself is not true. Because simply its composition is different than what you're claiming it is. Because all those earlier studies, they were very elegant, by the way. I remember reading some of them you know, so many years ago. We're using synthetic membranes. They weren't using natural membranes because the technology at the time, you couldn't do natural membranes. In fact, even today, um, when you do liposomal work and like you're trying to develop a new pharmaceutical, chances are you're using some kind of micellar system where you're manufacturing a membrane surface, unilamellar, bilayer, etc. X2 phase, doesn't matter what you're looking at. 
and you use real membranes, you have to use cells and then everything is added back. And when everything's added back, 